So, um, am I coming through on the... Can y'all hear me back there? Is this thing on? It is on? Okay, perfect. Um, so, whenever Fred started singing that song, Kayla looked over at me and she said, you asked him to play that, didn't you? And I did. It's my favorite hymn. Um, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer this morning as we open up His Word together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the beauty of that Gospel. Lord, that You, God the just, were satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. Lord, that You didn't compromise Your righteousness, nor did You withhold Your mercy from us, but in Christ, God, You have pardoned our sin. Lord, like the prodigal son coming back to the Father, covered in the slop of pigs, You run out to us with the righteousness of Jesus and You put on that robe to cover up our filth so that this morning we can stand before You as children. So Lord, that's the gospel that we boast in. That's the gospel that we anchor our hope to this morning. And Lord, we just ask that You would help us to see that gospel afresh this morning. Lord, it's in Your name we pray. Amen. So our passage this morning is Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 42 through 47. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, I'm, uh, my name's Zach. I'm the intern here. Kevin, our pastor, is on vacation, but he'll be back with us next week. Uh, we've been in a series going through 1 Corinthians, uh, and we're on track to have that finished up in the next few weeks, and Kevin's going to begin an Advent series for us. But uh, this morning we're taking just a, uh, just sort of a brief detour going through Acts chapter 2. Um, Acts chapter 2 perhaps is a, a pretty familiar passage to some of us, right? Maybe uh, maybe this is one you've heard countless sermons preached on, but just to give you a little bit of background on what's going on through the first chapter and a half of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 picks up with the resurrected Jesus, and it says that he's uh, he stayed on the earth after he was resurrected for some 40 days teaching his followers. And then after 40 days, right, we see the scene where he's taken up into heaven, And before he's taken up into heaven, he tells the disciples to remain there in Jerusalem because they are going to be his witnesses. But he says, before I send you out of the world, stay in Jerusalem because I'm going to send a helper for you. I'm going to send my spirit. And when the spirit comes, he's going to make you my witnesses. And so shortly thereafter, we see the disciples there in the upper room gathered together, praying, devoting themselves to the prayers, what it says. And as they're praying, it says the Holy Spirit descends and fills the room that they were gathered in and tongues come and rest on them as a fire. And they begin speaking in a language they previously didn't know and they're preaching the gospel. And so people that had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world at that time were able to hear the gospel in their own language. This was an incredible outpouring of the Spirit. And all the people in Jerusalem were gathered there uh, for the day at Pentecost, right? This is a festival that would have brought people from different tongues, different nations, all into Jerusalem, proselytes and Jews alike, for the worship of the Lord. And so here we see everyone gathered together and the apostles speaking in tongues, speaking in known languages so that people could hear the gospel. And so Peter to give an account of what's going on, and we're picking up on kind of the tail end of that. I'm actually going to ask you to read with me, starting in chapter 2, verse 36, and we'll go down to verse 47. Verse 36. Again, this is in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he says, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number that day by day those who were being saved. This is God's Word. And so, um, few, I say a few years ago, gosh, it was 15 years ago now, we were on a family vacation. We went down to Gulf Shores about once a year when we could. And um, when we were down there, my family had this tradition of going to Waterville. This was before uh, you actually had to sell one of your organs to afford getting in, right? And so we could, we would go to Waterville, and I think that was more of just an effort to give the kids something to do so mom and dad could take a break, right? Like, yeah, we'll throw you on the lazy river, y'all just by the pool and get us out of the condo, okay? And so we go to Waterville, and I'm probably six or seven years old. And I remember thinking, man, what a perfect, just sort of a picture-perfect day, right? Beautiful weather, you can smell seafood just a few doors down, right? You've got uh, this awesome water park that we're excited to go to. And we walk in the gate, and we're, you know, we're having a good time, right? Like, this is the kind of family day that you kind of always imagine and what you hope happens on a family vacation, and we walk in the gate, and I'll never forget this because I was absolutely terrified. Um, I walked in the gate, and I think Dad had me by the hand and Mom had uh, my brother Nathan by the hand. And as we walk in, just inside the gate, Seagull flies overhead and torpedoes my dad down his shoulder. Right? I mean, first step inside the gate, he steps out from under the awning after paying probably way too much money to get in the park, and a bird just right down the shoulder, right? And I... There's not many times that my dad and I are really at a loss for words, but I look over at my dad and he's silent, which was terrifying. And so without saying a word, right, he just turns around and walks to the bathroom. And mom was like, okay, we're going to go and walk in the park now. It's going to be fine. Your dad's not frustrated at all, right? But it was like, okay, this is not exactly how this was supposed to go, right? But this is a pretty common experience for human beings, namely that there's typically this gap between how we would imagine things to be, maybe even how they're marketed to be, and then how we actually experience them to be, right? Even the best things in life tend to be just a little bit tainted, right? Think about Disney World. love Disney World. hadn't been a long time, but I, you know, the memories are still there from going as a kid. And going to Disney World, right, you see all the promotional pieces, you see other people posting pictures on Facebook about their family vacations and whatever, and all you see are the smiles, Everybody's excited to see Mickey Mouse, right? The cool breakfast and whatever. Nobody talks about the half day's journey with screaming kids in the car. <laughs> Nobody talks about hours in line. Nobody talks about the 100 degree Orlando heat. Nobody talks about the price of food once you get in the park, right? 
Because there's a gap between the way we imagine things to be and then the way they actually are. And I think sometimes whenever we read Acts chapter 2, specifically these few verses, we tend to sort of see the church that way. We tend to see Acts chapter 2 as sort of an advertisement for a church where there's this massive gap between the way the Bible talks about the early church and then maybe what our experience in the church has been. Now maybe that means that you've been really burned by church in some really damaging ways. Or maybe that means you've just found the church to let you down, right? I would say that takes all of about 24 hours being a part of a church to realize that the church is not perfect because its members are not perfect. And so it's easy to look back at Acts chapter 2, and this is what I don't want to do today, is look back at Acts chapter 2 in the early church and say, man, we've lost something. I don't want to look back at Acts chapter 2 in some sort of idyllic fashion that says, okay, you know, think about the good old days way back when. Look how far we've gone. What I want us to do is look back at Acts chapter 2 because I think this is what Luke intended when he wrote the book of Acts. I think that Luke wanted us to read this account of the early church and not see that we've just really strayed off the reservation. I think he wants us to look at Acts chapter 2 and see that the same Spirit of God that was moving in the early church is still present in our church today. I want us to see that the early church sort of sets in front of us a model for the priorities that we're supposed to have as a church and as individuals. It's not that we have lost something in the past. It's that God wants us to look ahead at what our church ought to be, and He's given us a roadmap for how to get there. And so there's a few things that sort of mark this church that we're going to talk about. There's three things. Devotion to Scripture, devotion to fellowship, and then devotion to evangelism. Three main things that mark the church, and certainly there are several other things in this passage that we could talk about, but we're going to sort of bring them under those three umbrellas right there. So let's start with that first one, devotion to Scripture. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, says in this early church, says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Alright, so we talk about the apostles' teaching. We're just take that one little phrase right there, okay? The apostles' teaching. So if you can imagine the early church, right, they've experienced this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They've seen God's Spirit do amazing things in their midst. And it's interesting that just shortly thereafter, right, we don't find the early church getting together praying for God to do something magnificent again, looking back at a day gone by. We don't see the church being governed by their experience. We see them returning to the apostles' teaching, Now, obviously, we don't have any apostles today, right? We know some denominations use that language, but an apostle was someone who had seen the resurrected Lord Jesus and been commissioned by Him, okay? Not any of those walking around anymore, right? So, we don't have an apostle that we can go and talk to. What we do have are their teachings, right? Today, we don't get to go and talk to an apostle, but their words have been bound together for us in Scripture, And so the early church loved the Word of God because they were filled with the Spirit of God. And this is important, right? The the Holy Spirit, when He came and indwelled the lives of these believers, these are the things they began to commit themselves to, to devote themselves to. There was a love for the Word that accompanied the Spirit of God. John Stott said this, The Spirit of God will always lead to a submission to His Word. Where the Spirit of God is, there will be a love for His Word. The two always go hand in hand. And we see this evidence by the fact in verse 43... He says that as they were doing this, there was an awe that came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so as the apostles are teaching, what sort of authenticated their message and proved that they were actually able to speak on behalf of the Lord was the fact that there were miracles being done in their midst. 
It was authenticating that message, proving that it was the real deal. The Spirit and the, the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God always go hand in hand. The Spirit of God will never lead you where the Word of God does not lead you. Those two things always go hand in hand. But what effect did it have on the church? Verse 43 again. It says, let's see, sorry. Verse 43, it says, And an awe came upon every soul. An awe came upon every soul. So as they were, as they were getting together, they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. As they were devoting themselves to the Word of God. The effect it had on them was it produced in them a sense of awe. What is a sense of awe? Let's define that. Awe simply means a worshipful reverence, right? Some older translations might use that word fear. And that is part of it, right? We're not talking about being afraid of God in an unhealthy way. Acts 9.31 actually uses this word again. It accompanies it with comfort and peace. That when there is a right fear of the Lord, a reverence for the Lord, it's accompanied with peace. And so it says that this sense of awe came upon the church. As the church heard the Word of God, it produced in them an awareness of God's enormity, His majesty, His glory, and it put things in their proper perspective. And I think this is what the Word of God does, and this is why it's so vital for us in our own lives. Is that when we really dig into the Word of God, what we see happen is we begin to see that God is much bigger than we often think He is, And we are much smaller than we typically think we are. The Bible gives us right perspective. God's Word gives us right perspective. When this sense of awe settled on the church, it put God in perspective for them. They saw God's majesty, His grandeur, His power. And that's the effect that the Word of God ought to have on us. The Word of God ought to move us more than just intellectually. It ought to move us emotionally. The things we learn about who God is, that ought to do something in our hearts. It ought to affect the way we see the world, the way we ought to see God, the way we live in our day-to-day lives. Knowledge ought to produce a sense of awe. John Piper says it this way. It's in this book, uh, Habits of Grace, we went through last year, I believe. John Piper says, A godly life is lived out of an astonished heart. A heart that is astonished at grace. And get this, he says, we go to the Bible to be astonished, to be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and grace and the gospel. So the point of going to the Word of God reaches beyond knowledge. The reason why we pursue knowledge in the Word of God is so that we begin to develop a sense of awe and amazement at the gospel of God. We go to the Word to have our hearts transformed, to have them stirred up, to have them motivated to be put in a, in a spot of being amazed. And I think so often the reason why we miss out on being amazed at the Word of God is because we just rush through it, don't we? I think that even though this is the one indispensable ingredient for health in the life of a Christian is being in the Word, I think the reason why this is so often neglected is because we typically give God's Word the leftovers of our attention. And as a result, right, if if being in God's Word gives us proper perspective and it leaves us sort of feeling astonished and amazed at God and His gospel, then surely the opposite is true, that when I neglect God's Word, does it produce just sort of a sense of sluggishness, right? I had somebody tell me one time that when they were in the Word on a daily basis, and he said, when I begin my day off in the Word, my day can only be so bad. 
if I fail to get in the Word at the beginning of the day, my day can only be so good. Right? God's Word has a transformative effect on our hearts. And when we give it the leftovers of our attention, it leaves us with sort of this sense of sluggishness. The chief priority of this early church was they were in the Word together. They were studying God's Word together. And this is the goal in our church, right? We make God the priority. It's the governing authority for our church. That's why we try and have several points of contact for you in the Scriptures every week where we can teach the Scriptures because we believe that's the most important thing. But our goal in that is not just that we would have a bunch of people that know the right answers, but that God's Word would begin to shape our experience. That we would be emotionally impacted by what we read. Not that we would be sluggish Christians. And I really do believe, because Satan, I mean, let's, I mean, let's be honest here, Satan is incapable of destroying the church. If he was capable of destroying the church, he would have done a long time ago. I think that Satan, since he can't just outright destroy or squash the church, I think that what he's very content to do is keep his people from the book. Satan would love nothing more than to keep God's people from this book. Because when we get away from God's Word, everything else starts to sort of lose its gravitational center, right? We don't realize God as being the center of our universe anymore. It makes us sluggish. makes us unmotivated. Our evangelism loses its power. It loses its priority. Right? All of the things that sort of ought to be trademarks of us being Christians, they sort of lose their importance when we're not in the Word. We lose, we lose our zeal when we're out of the Word. And Satan would love nothing more than to keep us from it. Second thing, not only were they devoting themselves to the Word, there was a devotion to the fellowship. Verse 42 again. It says, not only were they devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That word fellowship there, the Greek word, is kinonia, right? It's a, that, that word means to hold something in common. And so I think it's interesting then that as Luke is writing this about the church, he uses this Greek word that talks about having something in common. Why? What, what did this early group have in common? Because frankly, it wasn't their language. We know that. It wasn't their ethnicity. <coughs> It wasn't their socioeconomic status. It probably wasn't even their hobbies. But this church held something in common. And it was Jesus, right? This was a group of people that had come to believe in the gospel of Jesus. They had seen their need for the gospel. And they had encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus through the teaching and preaching of the apostles. The church had Christ in common. And what I think is amazing there is that that was actually bigger than any differences they had. The fact that they had Jesus in common was more important. It carried more weight than any differences they had in ethnicity, in language, in wealth, whatever it was. This church had Christ in common and that was the most important thing. And so there's three things about their fellowship I want to notice. The first was that their fellowship was marked by worship. Right again in verse 42 there it says they were devoting themselves to the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and prayer and the prayers. And so what it's talking about there, the breaking of the bread, it's talking about communion, right? The Lord's Supper and the prayers, not just prayers, but the prayers. Talk about a corporate prayer, right? We don't know exactly what those were. It would have been some type of prayers they would have used in their worship service. And so what's interesting about this is that 
they saw worship as sort of a natural result of what Jesus had done in their lives. Right? When this church experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ, they saw it as sort of a natural result that they would get together and they would worship this Jesus together. Right? Because they recognized that Jesus had paid for their sins, because they recognized that they were in the same boat in terms of being mutual need, right? They, there is no hierarchy of Christians. There are no Christians who have it together and then some that really don't have it together. What we see in the early church was an awareness of the fact that nobody had it together. And isn't that the beauty of the gospel? And frankly, what frustrates us a little bit is that the gospel comes to us and tells us, you don't have anything together. Right? The gospel comes to us and tells us, you don't have it going on. Your life is not all together and you need the grace of Jesus. And so it leveled the playing field and they recognized that, hey, we're in the same boat. None of us more needy than the other. We all need the same grace. We all need the same blood of Jesus. And so they worshiped together. It was a natural result. It wasn't a chore. It wasn't something they begrudgingly did. In response to the grace of Christ, they enjoyed worshiping together. Second thing that marked their fellowship was hospitality. Or excuse me, second thing, I jumped ahead of myself. Second thing is generosity. Second thing is generosity. Verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I know what we see here is we see sort of this... um, really amazing picture of generosity, right? And again, it makes sense if you think about the context, right? This is a group of people that had traveled from a great distance and were staying in Jerusalem for the day at Pentecost, right? For a festival. And as they're there, they don't necessarily have jobs there with them right now. Nobody carried debit cards back then, right? And so they stayed a little bit longer than they are planning on and people were in need. And so what we saw was the early church actually going and selling their possessions, right? The things they had worked for, to make sure that no one in the fellowship went without need. So on one level, the very basic takeaway from this is that we are called to make sure that no one in our congregation goes without, right? This is not to say that the church is here to finance our every single desire. This does not mean that if I want some nice new shiny car or whatever, right, that I'm supposed to go take up an offering at the church to make sure I get a car. What this does mean is that because we are in a covenant community together, When a real need, not necessarily want, when a real need arises, the church steps up to meet that need. And to your credit, this is the most generous church I have been around. The way you guys take care of one another, the way you've taken care of me and Kaylee has been amazing. This is a generous church, right? And that's the way the early church was. They're called to be generous. But not only are we called to sort of meet specific needs like this, What I want you to see is sort of this undercurrent of generosity that seems to be welling up in these believers. That as the Holy Spirit had come in and began to work in their hearts, right, through the gospel of Jesus and through meeting together, through the word of God, what ends up happening is is that people grow increasingly less selfish, right? Over time, as they're meeting together and growing in their relationship with Christ, they get less and less selfish. Life becomes less and less about them. And I think the same is true for us, that as we gather together and as we study the Word of God together, as we worship together, what we ought to see in our lives as believers is we ought to see the world becoming less and less about us. We ought to see our fist slowly opening instead of closing. We ought to see ourselves becoming more generous, not just with our money, 
but also with our talents, the ways we can serve the church. Also, with our time, just giving people our time. Being here to serve, getting together with other people. We ought to see ourselves increasing in generosity. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ now lives within us. Jesus was the self-sacrificing Savior. He didn't come and say, what can you give me? He came and laid down His life for the church. And the Spirit of that Savior lives within us. So how in the world can we live our lives thinking that life is all about me? That's not the way our Savior lived. That's not the way we're called to live. There's a generosity that comes about in the heart of a believer when the Holy Spirit takes up residence. And here's the next thing that we see in their worship or in their fellowship. Their fellowship was marked by hospitality. Verse 46 says that day by day, not only were they attending the temple, right, which goes back to worshiping together, they would go and worship together in the Gentile court, probably at the temple at that time. But then it says that they were gathering together, breaking bread in their homes. So worship was not something that was just happening at the temple. Worship was something that was happening outside the walls of the church, so to speak. Right? Worship and fellowship were happening at people's homes. Now, we don't know if this is talking about sort of an informal worship that was happening at the house, or if this was just really them getting together and having dinner together. But it doesn't really matter because the church needs both, right? That's why we do growth groups in somebody's home, right? That's why Kevin talks so much about what he calls the ministry of the table, which is just a really fancy way for saying hospitality, right? Now, the reason why we call it ministry of the table and not hospitality is because when you say hospitality in the South... We have a totally different view of what hospitality means, right? Like automatically our minds go to, my house has to look like something out of Southern Living Magazine, right? When we think of hospitality, we think of entertaining people. We think about trying to cram all of our stuff in a closet so that nobody comes over and sees that our life isn't as put together as it is on social media, right? Got to have everything looking perfect. That's not the hospitality the Bible's talking about. and It's not what we want you to do. When the Bible talks about hospitality or ministry of the table, the reason why this seems to be such a big thing in the New Testament, I mean, let's think about logically for a second. The deepest relationships you have with people in this church are the relationships that go beyond this building, right? The people you know best, the people you enjoy spending time around the most, the people you know the best, are not people you encounter for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. The people you know the best are the people you spend time with outside the walls of the church. That's just logical, right? Relationships matter. And if we want this church to grow relationally, if we want to see people come and get plugged in, then people have to exercise the gift of hospitality. And your house may not look like something out of the Southern Living Magazine. People may show up. And see a car in your driveway that hadn't ran in six months. And the grass hadn't been mowed. And the laundry's in a hamper by the door. And you've burned the chili. Right? That's okay. Because the beauty of it is is that Jesus meets you in that mess. Jesus meets you in the imperfect. That's the beauty of the gospel. Is that our lives aren't perfect. And Jesus doesn't require it to be so. When we let people into our homes, we are letting them in behind the curtain a little bit. And showing them, my life's not all together. I don't have it all figured out. And that's okay because the grace of Jesus is enough. That's where we're going to get to know people the best. It's where we're going to show people the love of Christ the best. So we have them into our homes. So again, this is not a call to entertainment. This is not a call 
to go get yourself in debt trying to have the perfect house before you can entertain people. And please don't buy the lie that at some point, somewhere down the road, you're going to have it all together and then you'll start having people over. Right? The grass will always need to be cut. The laundry will always be piled up. Right? There's always going to be something. Exercise the gift of hospitality. That's the beauty of the gospel right there. We don't have to have it all together. We can still have people into our homes. Jesus invites us in in our mess. We can invite other people into our mess then. So, we see them getting together, breaking the bread in their homes. And then in verse 47, look at the result. Or excuse me, then to verse 46. As they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. So get this, because of their gathering together, because of the way they interacted when they were around one another, what was happening was, was people outside the church were actually looking in and going, man, I like what I see there. People outside the church were looking in and going, okay, maybe I don't necessarily agree with everything they believe, but man, there's something to this because look at how they're treating one another. See, this doesn't come natural, does it? All it takes is getting married to find out that you're more selfish than you know. Right? Being selfless is not something that comes natural. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, it begins to produce in us a sort of selflessness that models Jesus. And that's what we're called to. And that's ultimately going to be what's attracting people into the fellowship is seeing that kind of love, right? And so... Scripture says they found favor with all people. And this is not to say again that there was no opposition. We see just a few chapters after this that there was a tremendous amount of opposition. So much so that they had to flee Jerusalem. Most of them did. They were not without their issues or their problems. But this fellowship was attractive to people outside the church. Point number three. This sort of segues into that. And the last one there is devotion to evangelism. Devotion to evangelism. Verse 47 They're praising God, having favor with all people. And then the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's interesting right there, right? That up until this point, He's detailing sort of the priorities of the church, devoting themselves to the Word, worshiping, devoting themselves to the prayers, the fellowship, etc., right? It was the people seemingly doing the work, right? It was them devoting themselves to something, Now, what we would say about that is, is that their devotion to fellowship, their devotion to the Word, their devotion to the fellowship, all those things were fueled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit doing the work in them, right? And so then when we get down to verse 47, and it says that it was the Lord adding to their number, the Lord bringing people into the church, grafting them in, Luke gives all the credit to the Lord, to Jesus. Now, the book of Acts has often been called the Acts of the Apostles, right? That's been traditionally what we've called it. But what you see as you read through the book of Acts is that the major player in this book, yes, there are apostles, but the major player in this book from start to finish is the Lord Jesus, working directly or indirectly through His Holy Spirit. So the book might more accurately be called the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, right? It was the Lord ruling and reigning over His church as its head, bringing people into the fellowship. 
And this is exactly, uh, well, but even though it was Jesus doing it right, and it is the Holy Spirit empowering our devotion to things like Scripture and to prayer and to fellowship. It's all Jesus working in and through His people. And so just because Luke phrases it this way, doesn't mean that the, the church sort of circled the wagons over here on this side of town and people came beating down the door to come in. Right? Yes, the Lord is responsible for ultimately bringing people in, grafting them into His family and bringing them into the church. But ultimately, we can read between the lines and know that this was a group of people who were going out and telling people about what they had experienced. Right? Because this is exactly what Jesus promised would happen in Acts 1.8. He told them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were then, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Right? Jesus promises that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I'm going to send you out as my witnesses. And so even though it was the Lord working through them, bringing people into the church, that's not to say that people didn't go out and share. This was fulfilling Jesus' promise about what was going to happen in them and through them when the Holy Spirit came and dwelled their lives. Jesus had saved this group of people and He had saved them to a vibrant fellowship with Himself and with one another. Right? When Jesus saves us, He he saves us to Himself into a relationship with Him. But then He saves us into this vibrant community called the church. He saves us to a group of people. And I'm not just saying He saves you to Grace Fellowship Church. He saves you to the church, right? And one day we know from Revelation 7, there's going to come a day when we are gathered with the church in its purity and splendor because they've been washed in the blood of Jesus and we're all gathered together, the church past and present and future for us, right? We're all going to be gathered together. We are saved to a church, not just saved and sort of set out like Lone Ranger Christianity style. It's not the way the Bible talks about salvation. We are saved to God and to the church. And what I think is interesting is that when they came and they were studying the Word together, so they came and they were meeting together, they didn't care to keep that fellowship to themselves. Right? They had discovered something miraculous. When Jesus saved them... They had found a rich fellowship with God as their father. And then they had found this rich fellowship with one another. And their reaction wasn't, all right, circle the wagons, we've got to hoard this fellowship to ourselves. Can't let anybody else in because they'll ruin it. Right? The response of the church was, okay, Jesus has saved us. We've been given the gospel, right? The good news. And their response was then to go out and tell. Their response was to go and tell people, look at what God has done. Well, look at what He is doing. And here's the thing is that as the church is hearing this message, this gospel, they're looking at the something to this. They're looking at the church and saying, okay, the way they love is authenticating this message, right? Jesus promised that in John 13, 35. He says, by this everyone know, will know you are my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. The stamp of our authenticity as Christians is the way we love one another. And it gave validation to the message they were carrying out. That people could look at the church and say, okay, yeah, there is something to this. The church exists for a purpose, namely to see people come to know and enjoy fellowship with God and with other people. The church is not called to sort of sit on their hands, so to speak. We're not called to just sort of stay stagnant. 
Our call as believers is to go out, to tell. Now, when we say this, I don't know if you're picturing in your mind some kind of a massive church evangelism movement. Depending on your background, maybe you're thinking of a revival meeting in the backyard. I don't know. But I know that first and foremost, what this means is that if the church as a whole is called to evangelize, that means its individual members are called to evangelize. The call of the church is that we would go into our everyday lives, the spheres of influence that God has given us. He's calling us to go to our jobs. He's calling us to go to the golf course. He's calling us to go everywhere that He would have us go and be a witness for Him that as we go, we're sharing this good news. Not just by the way we live, but by what we say, right? Now what this means, and this is the really hard part, right? This is where rubber meets the road. Is that not only has He called us to do this, you know, maybe on a mission trip or whatever, but when God calls us to go and evangelize, this is a call, like I said, to go to the golf course, to go to work, to go to our family reunions this week, and be around people who don't know Jesus. And it's obvious they don't know Jesus. But the problem for most of us is that this is going to mean going deeper in our conversations than we'd like to go. Right? It's hard to have these conversations with people. It's really hard to go deeper than college football. It's really hard to go deeper than the weather or how things are at work. It's easy to keep things there at sort of a topical level. But to truly go and evangelize means that we're going to have to sort of step out beyond that comfort zone and we're going to have to actually tell people about the good news we've experienced. Romans 10, 14-15 says this, But how can they call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in them or believe in him unless they have if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the messengers who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. How will someone believe if they don't hear? It's easy to just say, well, I'm going to let my actions speak for themselves. But the call to evangelize is the call to tell good news. And so, that's the three things that we see the church devoting themselves to. They were devoting themselves to the Word. They were devoting themselves to fellowship. And they were devoting themselves to evangelism, to going out and telling people. And I would say that, based on what God's Word shows us all the way through, right, is that our priorities as a church and as individuals ought to be the same. What the early church prioritized, not that they were perfect, but what they prioritized, we should prioritize. So, ask yourself the question, when it comes to reading God's Word, am I prone to just give myself to mindless distraction? Am I prone to roll out of bed and hit the to-do list? Or do I take time to sit and be with God? Do I take the fellowship seriously? Do I prioritize being a part of God's church? Look, depending on what experiences you've had in the church, it's easy to just sort of sit back and wall up against other people and say, you know, no, I'm good. You know, I'm going to be here, I'm going to get my dose of Jesus, and I'm going home. But to really value the fellowship, to devote yourselves to it, is going to mean that we give generously, that we're hospitable, we let people into our space. Devote yourself to that. 
then lastly, ask yourself, am I devoted to evangelism? Or, you know, do I tend to just sort of stall out at topical conversations, easy conversations? Now, I think there's two ways to respond to this message, and I'm going to close here. There's two ways we can respond to this. Maybe this is a very familiar passage for you, right? Um, and it's easy to sort of read over this and go, okay, got it. Read my Bible more, pray more, go to church. Got it. Tell people about Jesus. Check. Right? When we really think about this, I think there's two ways that we can respond if we're truly feeling any conviction. And the wrong way we can respond is saying, okay, I'm going to try harder so God is happy with me. It's okay. All right, here we go. God's given me the formula for what it looks like to make Him happy. So all I have to do is read my Bible more, pray more, go to church more, and tell some people about Jesus at work this week. And if I do that then, buddy, God's going to be happy with me. And the problem is that that's not the gospel, right? That right there misses the heart of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you and I have had our sins forgiven by this crucified and then resurrected and currently reigning Savior. We've been filled with His Holy Spirit, and now my righteousness is not from me, it's from Jesus. I'm not working for His approval. I'm working hard for Jesus because I've already got it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the second way that I think you can respond, and I hope you do. Is that because God has poured out His grace on us in Christ, because our sins have been forgiven, because we now stand before Him as adopted children, not people on a hamster wheel of our performance trying to earn His favor. We stand before Him forgiven and adopted and accepted and loved. And because of that, I've got something to go tell other people. Because of that, I want to be in the Word. I want to hear what God has to say. I want to plunge the depths of the knowledge of His character. I want to know Him. Because I've experienced this gospel, I can't help but give myself away because it's not the most important thing to me anymore. That's the kind of heart change that we want to see. We don't want to see you doing these things to earn His approval. We want to see you devoting yourselves to the Word, to fellowship, and ultimately to evangelism because God's given you His approval in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you never accepted that gospel, then there's a rich fellowship with God and with one another that we would love to invite you into today. If you know Christ then keep believing this gospel. Keep coming back to this truth. And even when you don't feel like reading the Word, even when you don't feel like devoting yourself to the fellowship and being generous and being hospitable, even when you don't feel like evangelizing, do that anyway. Because that that little conviction you feel is evidence that God's Holy Spirit is working in you and through you. And Jesus will build His church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for sending Your Holy Spirit into our lives. Lord, we thank You that You've prepared, as Your Word says, good works beforehand that we would walk in them. And so, Lord, our our hope, Lord, this morning, our prayer, is that You would stir it up in our hearts, Lord, to remind us of the Gospel, remind us that we're not working for Your approval, but from it. And that, Lord, as we're doing that, as we're being reminded of that, Lord, that You would cause us to be devoted to Your Word and to fellowship with one another. That You'd cause us to be so 
overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done for us that we can't help but talk about you. Lord, we want our church to look like the early church in Acts, and we know the way that we go about that is by dedicating ourselves to these things. So Lord, work this in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.